Hi, welcome to the very first edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. We are so new, we don't even have a name yet. My name's Nick Veronin, I'm the editor of the paper, and uh, today I'm joined by staff writers Grace Lee and Ben Schneider, as well as our intern, Emily Zhang. It's been a pretty intense few months in the world. I started this job right at the beginning of the pandemic, and uh, I guess I can only speak for myself, but as a journalist working during the time of coronavirus, um, I'm toggling between incredibly stressful stretches of feverish on-deadline writing and editing and then intense ennui. Um, Perhaps I'm being a little bit melodramatic. Um, I am staying busy with hobbies and projects uh, when I'm not working and um, yeah, just trying to get used to this new world we're living in. Um, How about the rest of you all? Can you weigh in on on what it's been like uh, these past few months? Um, The past few months have kind of been um, a lot. (laughs) I feel like that's probably a little bit of an understatement. Um, Ever since the pandemic started, um, things have been kind of difficult, just adjusting to a new reality. Um, I'm really looking forward to the day when I can walk around without feeling like a safety hazard, Um, because I feel like that's generally been... um, one of my primary anxieties, just thinking about whether or not I have COVID um, and whether or not I'm accidentally passing it on to someone without realizing it. Yeah, for me, it's been um, kind of a emotional roller coaster, I guess. Sometimes I'm uh, really enjoying the, the quarantine lifestyle and reading and playing guitar and hanging out with my roommates. And other times I'm, I'm pretty frustrated by my many roommates and my pretty cloistered living situation here in San Francisco <laughs> as a young person. And over the past couple of weeks, I've been reflecting a lot about the way I move through the world and um, the systems in our society in terms of racial justice and, and policing. And um, I'm really glad that we're focusing on those issues here today at SF Weekly. I'm excited to dive in and talk more about it. So I was at university while the COVID pandemic kicked off, and it was, it was a lot of really fast goodbyes, especially for people who are graduating. Um, and it was a really bizarre time, especially because there was so much uncertainty. And since university still isn't going to be in person next year, like everyone's stuff is just there, like no one really knows what's going on. And these past few weeks, in light of the police brutality protests, I've also been thinking a lot more about my identity as an Asian person in the U.S. Like we may face discrimination, but also we benefit off anti-blackness in so many ways and this anti-black racism is so like virulent in the u.s thanks for sharing your thoughts about this moment that we're living through um very intense moment in terms of the pandemic and the um surge in support for um issues that have been a problem in our society in our country for forever um but uh, sometimes fade into the background and they're very much at the forefront of um, of a lot of people's minds right now. This week's issue is largely focused on the demonstrations that have swept the country in the wake of George Floyd's death at the hands of Minneapolis police. Again, speaking for myself, just as a white guy who was raised in the suburbs and maybe had, you know, had qualms with the police when I was up to no good, um, you know, I don't have the experience, and I realize this now in, in more clearly than ever that um, black people and brown people in this country have when it comes to the police. Um, I can only hope that uh, d- 
discussions like this that we're having will um, inform and change the minds of people like me who maybe, you know, felt like the police weren't that great, but weren't so bad. Um, and I think that's happening because on a national level now, we are seeing real serious conversations um, from uh, members of, you know, uh, the Minneapolis City Council to uh, here in San Francisco, uh, Mayor Breed, the district attorney's office, the public defender's office, um, and even the chief of police um, in various degrees, uh, seriously considering defunding police. Um, and that's sort of what my story talks about, how we got to this moment. And yeah, I want to open it up again to ask you guys what what you all think about um, this movement and this this sort of rallying cry to defund the police. Uh, we'll start with uh, you, Ben. You helped me on this story. Well, it's been really striking to do some more research on this issue and and understand the numbers behind some of these rallying cries, the um, really striking disparities that exist when it comes to uh, black people in particular um, and and uh, arrest rates and um, rates of incarceration as compared to to white people um, and people of, of all other races. Um, so when I was researching this story with Nick, um, I discovered a study from 2015 from the San Francisco Public Defender that found that African Americans in San Francisco are seven times more likely than whites to be arrested, 11 times more likely to be booked in jail, and 10 times more likely to be convicted of a crime. Um, and that despite the fact that over the past few years, um, starting in about 2010, uh, crime was trending, arrests and crime were trending down really significantly. Um, the disparity between um, white people on one hand and, and black and Latino people on the other hand um, was growing. Uh, and that, that trend actually contradicted the overall trend in California where those disparities were narrowing. So in that respect, San Francisco was actually um, far from being a progressive bastion, was actually doing a lot worse than the rest of California in terms of closing these racial disparities when it comes to policing and race. Emily, can you go next? So before all of this, I just really didn't know anything about what the defund the police movement meant. Um, and after doing some more reading and like some more research on my own, I've seen like the value in doing it. Um, like I've just been looking at all these statistics of how much money is going into police departments in major cities. Like it's, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. And then, you know, like in, in community programs, they're lucky to even get a fraction of that, like a 10th. So I think the defund the police movement is really valuable in that it kind of gets rid of this economy where like, like people are getting punished and instead there's like focus on care and economy centered around care. Um, which is what this co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement was also saying. Grace, um, can you share some of your general thoughts? And in, in, in a little bit, we'll talk about um, your story uh, on a sort of maybe path forward in the uh, Crisis Act. Yeah. So actually, Emily, I think what you were talking about earlier is um, restorative justice. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, if that is actually not what you were uh, referring to, but restorative restorative justice is essentially your approach to harm. And when harm is done, um, the concept is that there has to be healing on both sides, that we can't just focus on 
punishment, which is what our current um, justice system looks like. It's all about punishing and trying to find justice from that, except very clearly it's not working and it's very um, detrimental to our most vulnerable communities for like many different reasons. Something that I've sort of noticed with the defund the police conversation, and I'm not sure if it's just because of like the people that I talk to, um, it feels like defunding the police has become more and more moderate as it's as the phrase has been gaining popularity. Um, originally, when I was first introduced to the concept um, a while ago, defunding the police meant um, eventually abolishing the police. Um, but just recently, I saw an article in the Chronicle that was saying that defunding the police doesn't actually mean defunding the police. It means reimagining the police. Um, and that was just, I think, very contradictory towards to what I guess I've seen and read in the past. So I'm very, very curious about what, how that happened and what's actually going on with the language. It's a really interesting point, Grace, because uh, some of the people I talked to, like James Birch with the um, Anti-Police Terror Project, you know, he said, we think a good first step would be to uh, demand that the Oakland Police Department reduce its budget by 50%. And I think that Uh, I can't speak for him, but I mean, I think the goal with him and his organization is to completely reimagine the police. Um, I think uh, other more moderate voices out there are trying to kind of say, well, yeah, we can do this. um, But, you know, maybe, you know, we just take a little bit of money away from the police department, or maybe we just kind of cut back on the, the military weapons that these, these departments are, are pulling in. Um, uh, surplus from the from the U.S. military. Um, I know that in the um, in a statement that um, Mayor London Breed and Supervisor Shaman Walton um, made, uh, the number that was thrown out by Walton was was pulling uh, 25 million um, out of the San Francisco Police Department. Um, and if you look at the uh, entire budget, I don't have that number in front of me, but it, it, it's a small fraction. Um, and, um, uh, Birch with the, uh, with the anti-police terror project made, uh, the same, um, made a similar point about how the, you know, Los Angeles police department is, is in the billions and, um, their mayor recently said, oh, well, we're going to take X amount of millions of dollars away. But it really, you know, when you're dealing with a police budget on that scale, it's, it's sort of a drop in the bucket, um, and then I talked to um, some academics, historians at Berkeley. Erin uh, Carrison comes to mind. She's at the School of Social Welfare at UC Berkeley. And she says uh, unequivocally, when I say defund the police, I mean defund the police. So um, I think Grace brings up a good point uh, that, you know, uh, activists uh, who have been advocating for defunding the police are maybe cautiously optimistic at this moment that that their message is being heard but uh they probably um you know the cautious the caution in their optimism is that you know their their demands might really be kind of watered down um by the time um they end up in any kind of real legislation and if i could just add on to that um i feel like it's also worth um mentioning that a lot of theories about abolition um started with 
Black feminist theorists and Black Marxists. Um, and I feel like as the idea of defunding the police uh, to eventually abolish the police gets more and more moderate, um, I feel like a lot of people are sort of forgetting the origins of this movement. Um, and it felt important to honor that or recognize that at the very least. Well, uh, Grace, to that end, um, you worked on a story um, about a some proposed California legislation uh, called the Crisis Act, and it kind of lays out some framework, uh, a framework for what a community might look like um, with a drastically reduced police force, or uh, maybe even without a police force, the kinds of people that would respond to um, emergencies. Because uh, right now, you know, when there's an emergency, I think people are taught to dial 911. And if they do that, and not everybody does, um, especially people of color, black and brown people, because they know that the police are going to show up. And a lot of times the police are ill-equipped to deal with certain situations. So um, your story kind of starts out with one of those situations. Can you tell us about your story uh, and about the the Crisis Act? Yeah. So um, the story starts out with um, Tan Hall. And Tan Hall is a mental health advocate um, and a Walnut Creek resident. And her son, uh, Miles, was killed a year ago by police in the very city that he grew up in. Um, At the time, Miles was suffering from a schizoaffective disorder-induced mental health crisis, and Tan had called 911, hoping that the authorities could help um, calm her son down. Um, She just needed some, like, extra backup, and she had already, you know, she had taken precautions to make sure that uh, Miles would be safe. Like, she was very cognizant of the fact that Miles was a black 23 year old um, young man, and they were in a they were in Walnut Creek, which is a relatively white, wealthy neighborhood. Um, so they she was very aware of like the danger of that. Um, so that's why she had set up um, she had established a relationship with uh, the Walnut, Walnut Creek Police Department before she had t- she had told all her neighbors about uh, Miles's uh, situation. Um, she took almost like every precaution she could have um, in order to prevent a tragedy from happening. Um, But on Miles's last day, uh, police did not try de-escalating him at all. Uh, Instead, they shot him with non-lethal beanbags and they were yelling at him, which of course, you know, like if you're already in distress, that's not going to help in the slightest. Um, So uh, police shot Miles um, and Ever since then, she's uh, she's devoted her um, work towards uh, mental health advocacy, um, and she was she's one of the um, supporters for um, the Crises Act. And the Crises Act stands for a Community Response Initiative to Strengthen Emergency Systems. Um, and if it's passed, it will fund uh, California community-based organizations that are trained to respond to emergency situations that police are normally called for. So like mental health professionals would be first responders um, in situations like Miles's uh, instead of the police. Um, Generally, police in San Francisco um, don't actually have that much mental health training compared to a mental health professional. Uh, Police will have about, I think about um, a little over a thousand uh, police officers in San Francisco right now have about 40 hours of training, and that's really not a lot in comparison to a mental health professional who spent their entire lives in this kind of training and knowing how to de-escalate people, etc. And the Crises Act wouldn't just fund mental health organizations, it would also address other emergency situations like 
substance use disorder crises, um, unhoused people in dangerous situations, people suffering from domestic abuse or natural disasters. Um, there are like a variety of situations where police um, aren't the best choice to call. Um, and this act would help fund community organizations so that there are actually alternatives to call. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing, um, Grace. Uh, you can read both of those stories uh, on our website and um, in our e-edition. Um, Emily, I want to take a sneak peek at what's coming up next. Um, and this dovetails a bit with what we're talking about. Um, I mentioned a bit earlier the Anti-Police Terror Project, and um, you're working on a story about um, radical food organizing and um, another Oakland organization that's been concerned with helping the uh, black community um, is was the Black Panthers. And um, they have a history uh, of food organizing as well, um, which some people might not know if they just know very, you know, the very basics about the Black Panthers. But um, I want you to just Tell us about your the story you're working on and, and maybe the history of food organiz- organizing in the Bay Area and um, what's going on now. So my story is looking at how food justice is just intrinsically related to all these other types of justice, like racial and socioeconomic justice. Um, and the Black Panther Party in the 60s, I believe, were giving out free breakfast to school children. And then there in the Bay Area, there have been like a few other organizations. So the Berkeley Co-op opened in 1937 or 1938. And at their height, they were actually one of the biggest co-ops in the country. I think they had just a little bit over 100,000 members. And yeah, they were running until the 80s. And they even had childcare within their co-op. So the angle I'm taking with my story is looking at how food really factors into power and decision-making in our society. All right. Well, that's a look at this week's issue and uh, some of the stories we have coming up. Um, we hope uh, we hope people joined us for this uh, inaugural journey, this, uh, this maiden voyage on the uh, SF Weekly podcast. And um, we hope you'll continue to join us in the weeks to come. Thanks for listening.